Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray now that as we open your word together, that your Holy Spirit would use it to turn hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, to guide and lead your sheep, to give us rest and joy and confidence and exhortation in the gospel, to uh, hold and keep us until we see you face to face. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please take a seat. Kids, does anyone like being made fun of? No. What does it mean to make fun of someone? Making fun of someone doesn't just mean you're saying bad things about them, does it? But you turn that into a joke and make someone feel even worse. If you make fun of something somebody says, you're not just saying it's wrong, you're saying it's so wrong that it's funny. This is a way why teasing and making fun of people can be so hurtful. God says our tongues have a lot of power, right? Not like our bodies that can do things, but our tongues, just with what we say, can really lift people up or really, really tear them down. This is why it's so important to know how we use our words. You know, even grown-ups can be made fun of. Lots of people get made fun of for believing the Bible, for trusting in Jesus. Today, some men come who try to make fun of Jesus. How do you think Jesus handled being made fun of? Do you think that he got embarrassed for trusting in the Bible? Do you think that Jesus ag agreed? Well, I guess trusting in the Bible is silly. You think it's so silly. No. Jesus knows. When people don't know what the Bible says, when people don't know what God can do, we do not need to worry when they make fun of us. We can pray for them. We can hope God shows them the truth and they can be saved. But if anyone makes fun of you for being a Christian, they don't know the Bible. They don't know God's power. And God says, you do not need to be worried about what they think of you. I hope we can join Jesus in not being worried by other people and what they say about believing in him. Let's hear how Jesus deals with being made fun of. We're going to go to Mark chapter 12. We're going to start at verse 18. Mark chapter 12, starting at verse 18. And Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring, and the second took her and died, left, leaving no offspring. The third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason that you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, 
In the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. This is God's word. While we're in the middle of this section where Jesus' opponents keep really barraging him, facing off against him, trying to attack him in any way that they can. They've got questions, they've got hidden accusations. And in our passage today, a group of men come to Jesus who we don't actually meet very much in the Bible. In fact, this is the only place that we see them in Mark, and they are called the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees believed that only the first five books of the Bible, Genesis to Deuteronomy, were actually God's word. They might have called that the law or the books of Moses because they were written by Moses. We might call that the Pentateuch. All of the history, the prophecy, the poetry, Joshua, Psalms, Proverbs, Isaiah, on and on to Malachi. No, they did not say that that was God's word. So now, uh, using those five books, the Sadducees then said... Well, there is no resurrection from the dead, not for the body, not for the soul. In fact, the Sadducees opposed just about anything that they thought was supernatural apart from the existence of God himself. So now they're coming to Jesus and they think that the books written by Moses actually prove that there is no resurrection, that in the first five books of the Bible, they can make a case that there is not any resurrection from the dead. Now, if you know someone or know about someone who undermines any part of the Bible, who takes a part of it and says that's not true, you'll know that it's usually because there's something in that part of the Bible that they don't want to be true. It's not a case of that part of the Bible simply showing that it's false. It's that they have found something in that part of the Bible that they need to be false. Maybe this is an act which God has done, which this person just doesn't think can be right. So that must have been made up by people. Or maybe it's a teaching that they really need not to be true. They oppose that. A really simple way to fix this problem without having to come up with an argument or understand why God said something or did something is just to say, well, that doesn't actually belong in the Bible. Problem solved. This is what happened with the Sadducees. By getting rid of most of the Old Testament, the Bible in Jesus' day, the Sadducees could then say that they were the ones following God's law. They were following all the Bible, all the actual Bible, while still living very worldly, wicked lives. An example today of this behavior might be what is called the higher critical movement or the movement of higher biblical criticism. This is a group of very intelligent people, authors and thinkers and scholars, and their job is to get together and write papers and think about what parts of the Bible are actual, what parts belong in the Bible, and what parts are fabrications or came later. Now, they generally say most of it wasn't written by God, but Anything that seems supernatural, that seems hard to believe, that goes against their contemporary sensibilities, obviously goes right out the window really quick. The goal of these types of people has not changed much from the goal of the Sadducees so long ago. When you reject Jesus' call to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him, when you decide, I still want to be called a faithful person, but I am not willing to lay down my idols, to lay down my life for God. 
You need to find a way to claim the faith and hold on to your idols. And you are going to have to mold the faith into something that this world approves of so that you can be a believer while still having the approval of the people who hold on to your idols. You might even get to join them in making fun of those superstitious religious yokels who try and do everything the Bible says, who think that all of it is true. So the Sadducees, trying to have their cake and eat it too, say that they were the real believers while still appealing to everything they wanted in this world. We get a hint of this proud attitude in the question they put to Jesus. Now the question begins like this, teacher Moses wrote for us, that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. They are referencing Deuteronomy 25, 5 and 6, which says this. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a, husband, of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, so that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So the Sadducees look at this passage from Deuteronomy, and they propose to Jesus a very clever conundrum. There were seven brothers, they say. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. The Sadducees are saying, if Moses had believed in the resurrection, he would have said that you could not remarry. Because... When you lived the resurrection life, you would still be married to your spouse. They think that this argument scores for them a double win. First, it argues against the resurrection, but it also proves that the books of Moses disagree with the later books, those wisdom books and those prophets who clearly teach the resurrection from the dead. They don't agree with Moses. Note that this argument would have worked if they had just quoted Deuteronomy directly. They could have said, Two brothers were married to the same woman in the resurrection, which will, they, will she be? But they don't. They go all the way to seven, possibly quoting an apocryphal story at the time. But this shows that they're not just questioning what Jesus taught. They're making fun of it. They propose a ridiculous situation because they don't just think that what Jesus teaches is wrong. They think it is silly, not for good, sensible people. They hope that their question shows just how silly the whole thing is. Look at these ridiculous problems you've gotten yourself into, Jesus. Last week, the Pharisees tried to disarm Jesus with flattery. In our passage today, the Sadducees try and disarm Jesus with mockery. Josephus, the Jewish historian around the time of Jesus, wrote this. The Sadducees are even among themselves rather boorish in their behavior, and in their intercourse with their peers are as rude as aliens. Mockery is a very common lowbrow tactic when you are having an argument with someone. It tries to treat their argument like it is too silly to even deal with. Look at how ridiculous your idea is. It's a waste of time that we are even talking about this. It's meant to make your opponent doubt themselves and what they are saying. Oh, it's just that clear that I'm wrong? I should be nervous. Mark Twain 
very well-known skeptic and famous author for his pithy phrases, says this to Christians. You believe in a book that has talking animals, wizards, witches, demons, sticks turning into snakes, burning bushes, food falling from the sky, people walking on water, and all sorts of magical, absurd, and primitive stories, and you say that we are the ones that need help? Ooh. Magical, absurd, primitive stories. You know, when you say sticks turning into snakes like that, food falling from the sky, Mark Twain isn't just saying that those things are wrong. He's saying those things are ridiculous. How could anybody think that that took place? How does that make you feel? Defensive? Maybe ready to lash out at Mark Twain? Maybe a little bit nervous, ready to wave the white flag. Maybe he's right. Maybe it's all pretty silly. Maybe you've had a pretty similar interaction with somebody that you know. Similar to last week, Jesus decides, even though this is not a question being asked honestly, he is going to answer it. But like he did last week, he is going to make sure that he first exposes the dishonest hearts of his questioners. He says, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. This is our first point, responding to those who know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Friends, we, when we face arguments from people like this, we can ask ourselves, do they know what the scriptures say and do they understand the power of God? When they make this argument, are they aware of those things? Because if they reject those things, then there is this whole chasm underneath their disagreement, which makes arguing about these details almost irrelevant. What is the point of arguing with Mark Twain about whether a staff can turn into a snake? If scripture cannot settle an argument for someone, if they reject anything that could only be done by a perfect, all-powerful God, then we can look past those details and whether or not that person calls themselves a Christian, whether or not they say they are religious, they are resting on an entirely different foundation from you. You can love them, you can share the gospel with them, but you do not need to let their arguments disturb you. Jesus has no trouble rejecting the Sadducees out of hand in a way that he doesn't even do with the Pharisees. The Pharisees get much more of his attention than the Sadducees do because they are at least dealing with Scripture and they are dealing with what God said and did. This is our first point then. Do not be troubled by those who do not know the Scriptures or the power of God. Have you been troubled? Have you been unsettled by skeptics and their arguments? Is your own heart gnawing at you with these kinds of arguments? A worldwide flood, that does seem pretty far-fetched, doesn't it? A sea parting, like that makes no scientific sense. How would that even happen? There must have been some natural explanation for the Nile turning red. That stuff in Genesis is just so old, it must have just been written by people. Are you even nervous that the promise of eternal life might just be a pipe dream for superstitious people? Stop for a moment. Does it not make more sense than anything else that this universe, this normal one, this natural one, 
is created by a God who has power over it. That is not a foolish belief. That is the obvious belief. Well, then none of this is actually impossible or far-fetched, is it? If there is a God that rules over this universe, then all of a sudden, none of those things are actually strange, are actually absurd. If this God existed and desired to make himself known, how would he do so? If he is the God who created these natural processes, who loves these processes, how would he show that he was the one who did so? By demonstrating in history that he is the only one able to upend them. And then by having people witness that and write it down so that for the rest of history, people could know that this is what he had done. And if we go to the scriptures, we can ask, is this just a book of magic tricks? Or does scripture even tell us the reason why God did these things? Why he had these events take place? Why they were witnessed? And it does show these things with a precision and a perfection that is absolutely astounding when we know that this is a volume, a library of books written over thousands of years. It is so perfect that one must choose to harden their hearts against it once they have understood what it says. And that reminds us that this is the real problem with those who reject these things once they have heard them. They are dead in their sins, rebelling against the judgment of God. And they despise who God is and what he says because he tells them that they are in their sins and that all those who do not trust in his salvation in Christ will be resurrected unto eternal destruction. So, what do you do when your own heart is asking these questions? Seek answers to them, certainly. Jesus is answering these questions here. We do not need to say, oh, that's not for us to know. We can explore and mine the richness of the truth that we believe in. And if it is true, it will correspond with history and with, uh, with what we have learned of the universe. But we must all the more pray for a heart that is open to the truth and pray for that for others. Pray that we would not desire to appeal to worldly people just because we are afraid to lose the things in this world like the Pharisees and Sadducees were. Pray that your greater fear, your reverence, your desire would be for this God who judges the world and sends every person to their eternal destiny. This is a work that only God can do in our hearts, but it is a work that he does. It is a work that he sent his only son to die for so that our hearts of stone could be hearts of flesh so that we could have his spirit working faith and rest in us, even in the face of an antagonistic world making fun of us and what we believe. Let's pray for that faith and rest for ourselves and for one another. Now, once he has addressed the Sadducees directly, Jesus then answers their conundrum. For when they rise from the dead, he says, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the dead, but the God, God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are quite wrong. 
Jesus' answer goes right to the heart of how the Sadducees have misunderstood the scriptures, how they have missed the power of God. They have even misunderstood those books of the law, which they claim to be honoring as scripture. This is usually true of people who try and cut up what scripture says. This is where Jesus goes, right to the books that they love the most, to prove that God has always given his people hope for eternal life. And this is our second point. God is the God of the living. So Jesus quotes Exodus, which Derek read for us this morning. When God told Moses at the burning bush that he was the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. What was happening when God referred to himself this way? What was God telling Moses? He was saying that he had heard the cries of his people who were in slavery in Egypt. That his ears were turned to them and that he absolutely was going to deliver them from slavery. He was still their God. He was still committed to his promises. He would bring them out of Egypt. And God's promises to his patriarchs, saying that he was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he was the God who had made promises to them, who had been faithful to them, was his assurance that he would continue to do for their descendants as he had promised he would do. Now, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they had pretty difficult lives, didn't they? At most, they experienced just a first taste of the promises that God made to them and their descendants. God did bless them in many ways, but those blessings were a deposit. They were just the beginning of what God was really promising. For God to have led those men through difficult lives and then allow them to pass out of existence would have been contradictory to the promises that he had made to them. It would have been contradictory to the deliverance and the hope that he had promised. God entered into an eternal covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And that in itself was assurance that they themselves would continue into eternity to enjoy the fruit of that covenant. If Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had become nothing but thoughtless dust then God would not have been providing the real assurance he meant to, to Moses and his people. And so God tells Moses at the burning bush, not that he was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he is, that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob exist and are still praising God around his throne in heaven. Hebrews tells us that Abraham himself was aware of this in his own lifetime. Hebrews 11, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder was God, eternal foundations. Looking forward to that for his descendants? Well, yes but looking forward to that for himself also. Abraham was faithful to God all his life because he knew that there was a city with foundations waiting for him just as it was waiting for his people. Now it is true that God's word unfolds its message over time. God uses history and real events to carefully unveil his revelation, his hope to his people. The salvation that Jesus provides is sometimes referred to as a mystery, isn't it? 
in the way that Jesus accomplishes it. There are elements that are not always equally clear to God's people. They are carefully revealed to help us understand who God is, what God does, the salvation that he promises to his people. But the good news never changes. It is the same good news all throughout scripture, whether it is in its first hints or whether it is fully unveiled. God is unveiling one grand picture of eternal hope, and that is a hope for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and the same hope for you and me now. Jesus' own ministry was the massive unveiling of what God was accomplishing, even as he went to the cross to accomplish that salvation, to give eternal hope to the patriarchs and the Israelites and all of us. The Sadducees were so preoccupied with coming up with proud arguments against the resurrection that they were blinding themselves to the one who was here to bring about resurrection life to the world. And Jesus proves here their problem was not that they loved the books of Moses too much. It was that they didn't understand them. They missed that the hope for every Egyptian slave and Old Testament Israelite was being offered to them, and it was yours, and it is mine. Nothing less than eternal deliverance and rest in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of Jesus. When we trust in the power of God, when we see the promises in his word, we can rejoice that our God is all-powerful, and he is perfectly good and merciful. He does not make promises to deliver and grant life to people and then let them disappear in death. His promises are eternal. And so in Christ, he offers those promises to us as an eternal hope. He is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. And if he is your God, then he has secured an eternal place for you where you will worship him and enjoy him. And when you read scripture, when you read about how God was faithful to Abraham and faithful to Isaac and faithful to the Israelites in Egypt, you can be reminded that he will be faithful to you. You are meant to know that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is yours so that you can be confident that he will deliver you out of every evil deed and bring you safely into his heavenly kingdom. He will preserve you to eternity to enjoy him. That is what he sent Jesus to accomplish. All of his past faithfulness was paving the way for us to understand what Jesus had come to do, to offer eternal life to every single person whose hope is in the salvation of God. So now... As you go to scripture, remind yourself, when you read about what he did for Abraham, when you read about what he did for the slaves in Egypt, when you read about how he was faithful to David on the run, to Esther when uh, Haman was going to destroy God's people, to Daniel in the lion's den, you can say, that is my God. That is my assurance that he will remain faithful even to me. The God who delivers from death and delivers forever from death all those who have rested and trusted in Jesus Christ. Now, beyond demonstrating that God's word clearly promises us eternal life, Jesus then answers their problem about marriage and the resurrection. He says, when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, Acts tells us the Sadducees didn't believe in angels. 
Angels got written off with all of those other things that they found difficult to believe, like heaven and hell and Satan and demons. So Jesus is clearly not really answering for their sake. He is answering for the sake of those who do care what God's word says, who are willing to believe in the power of God. Now, marriage is a wonderful gift. It is a wonderful gift that came with very clear purposes. There are two that are really important for us here. First, the bond of marriage is meant to give us a living, walking, talking parable of the covenant love of God for his people. That was true all through the Old Testament. You can think back to the covenant he made with his people at Sinai and how marriage helped them to understand that. But that goes all the way to its final fulfillment in Jesus being willing to lay down his life for his people. As we witness and experience marriage, even watching the marriages of others or in our own marriage, we see in this parable the love of God for his people. And we even get to enter into a relationship where we are sanctified to grow into the love of God for one another. Now, the other purpose of marriage is that this is the way that we are meant to carry out God's creation mandate to fill the earth and subdue it. Marriage is God's design, not just for procreating, but for raising up and training children to maturity as God's image bearers who grow and fill the earth. Now, death and sin sometimes make it impossible for people to be raised in homes with a mom and a dad in a covenant relationship. And that is one of the gifts that the church can be to people in difficult situations, that we help people who are in such a situation and are raising kids. But the reason the church comes around and wants to help is that we do not need to deny that that is a good thing, that it is a wonderful gift for kids to be raised in homes with moms and dads who have committed to one another. Fulfilling God's mandate, not just to have kids, but to raise them up as God has shown us to. So those are two good purposes of marriage, to be a declaration of covenant love, to bring about God's multiplication mandate. Both of those gifts are necessary here and now, but they will no longer be necessary in the resurrection kingdom of Jesus. And this is our final point. Resurrection life is an eternal life of love. Adam and Eve needed marriage to fill the earth. And when death came into the world, the need for marriage persisted. As long as people die, more people are needed. But God uses his salvation in Christ to slowly gather a population for an eternal kingdom. And in the resurrection life, we will never die. The earth will be filled with all those whom God has saved, and there will be no need to add to this population. Similarly, the parable of God's gospel love that marriage is meant to be will no longer be necessary. We will no longer need the gospel proclaimed to sinners. We will not need parables to teach us of God's love and lead us into relationship with him because there we will in eternity dwell in the full and final fulfillment of God's covenant love. It will be visible. It will be enjoyed in its completeness. It will be our constant delight. You will spend every day filled up with your intimacy with God in such a way that you will no longer need the good but temporary parable of marriage to help you to delight in it. Now, some people 
have heard this message from Jesus with a twinge of sadness. Some people have heard it with more than a twinge. Some people have been quite upset. People who deeply love their spouse are sad to hear that this relationship will not continue in this form into eternity. Some people have also taken that idea that we are like the angels into strange and outlandish places. But we need to remember, resurrection life is not some strange, enormous shift or twist or departure from life in this world. It is what life in this world was always meant to be. The eternal kingdom of Jesus is not some sort of strange, abstract painting that you can't wrap your head around. It is what life in this world was always pointing towards. It will be more, not less, or other from what is good now. Our bodies will not become something different. Rather, they will be a kernel to become renewed resurrection bodies. Very much like our own, but enjoying total freedom from sin and the curse. All of our disabilities and our struggles and our illnesses and our hindrances, those will be gone. You will be the perfect, fullest version of yourself, body and soul, cleansed and renewed and glorified. What a sweet promise that is. Likewise, you will enjoy the full fulfillment of all the relationships that you get to enjoy here, including marriage. Our relationships are not going to become less wonderful in heaven. Rather, the love that we enjoy here is only going to grow. Yes, there are some temporary benefits of marriage which will no longer persist. But we're not going to forget the relationships we had in this world. We will remember them. We will enjoy them still. We will be thankful for the way that God used them for our faith and perseverance. We will delight in those that we knew in marriage and in friendship and in church membership. Delight that God gave us to one another to help us to persevere, to help us to grow in our faith, to make sure that we made it to this kingdom together. But those relationships as we experience them now are just the appetizer. They are the movie trailer. They are the first glimpse of the love and the joy that we will have in our relationships, even with each other in the resurrection kingdom of Jesus. In Jesus' kingdom, you will be without sin. This will not only make all of us a lot more lovable, but our love for each other will be totally purified. It will be without selfishness. It'll be without faltering. It won't have good days and bad days. It will not get bored or diminish. It is impossible for us to fathom the depth and the richness of the love that we will have for one another in the kingdom of Jesus. It is impossible for husbands and wives to understand the depth and the richness they will have for one another in the kingdom of Jesus. Just like it would be hard to explain to a very young child the love that we experience in marriage. And all of that depth and richness will be rooted in the sweet, everlasting love of God that we will enjoy together. Revelation talks about the moment where we will begin to enjoy that sweet, eternal love and fellowship with God and with one another. 
and it describes it as a meal, as a marriage supper, a great feast celebrating the covenant love of God, the salvation that he has accomplished, the joy that we are going to enter into forever. This morning, we will have a meal. We will gather around a table together, and this supper is meant to point your eyes forwards by pointing them backwards. It is meant to do both at the same time. It points your eyes to that great feast, just like our singing is a foretaste of the singing we will do one day, just like our fellowship is a foretaste of the fellowship we will have with one another, just like our prayer is a foretaste of the fellowship we will have with God. This is a foretaste of the communion that we will experience in that kingdom, that fullness of love and joy. That's why we come to the table together, why the whole church family is invited, because we are glimpsing the unity of the relationships that we are going to hold on to forever. We enjoy the love of one another here as we look forward to its sinless perfection in Jesus' kingdom. But we can only look forward through this supper because this supper is looking back at why that is possible. We look forward to that eternity of sweet fellowship and communion and joy because 2,000 years ago, there was one man and one man alone who deserved that joy. And he knew what it meant to feel forsaken by God. He knew what it meant to feel cut off from the delights that we hope in. He knew what the punishment of hell feels like. And he felt that for us. He felt that so that this meal would be his body. He could say it was his body and blood for us to be our entryway into the eternal resurrection kingdom of God. He suffered pain and loss so that we could be invited into the family where there will be no more pain. No more loss, no more sorrow, an eternal kingdom of love. And I would say before we take this together, if you are not a part of the body of Christ, do not take it. If you are not yet united with him in faith, then watch and see and know that you would be invited to join with this family at this table. Trust in Jesus Christ and in him alone and you will be saved. If you have not joined in membership and fellowship with a church family that preaches this gospel, then do not join in this visible representation of that. Be baptized, become a member of a church family that preaches the gospel, any church, not just ours, and then enjoy this visible declaration of that fellowship as it looks forward to the full and final completeness of fellowship and joy that we will look forward to together in the kingdom of Jesus. Let's pray, and then we'll pass this out together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the hope that is ours in Christ. We thank you that it is an eternal hope that it is a resurrection hope, that we, body and soul, will live and live eternally in the kingdom of Jesus. Father, I pray that this supper would help us to glimpse that eternal hope. I pray that we would hold on to it and we would see how wonderful a gift it is that this hope and this joy rests in the suffering, in the pain that Jesus experienced on our behalf. And I pray that that would point us to a sure and confident hope that rejoices in him. Father, we praise him. We lift him up.
And I pray that the joy and the rest we have in him would never be shaken by any man or woman coming to us in their pride and their own rejection. I pray rather that this wonderful proclamation of our rest and peace would work unto the salvation of many, turning dead hearts to life, that this kingdom might grow and grow until you have filled its population to completion. And Jesus will return and we'll rest in him forever. I pray in his name. Amen.